Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Naomi Rovnik. Today we're looking at sleep. How much do we need and can we have too much of it? Darren Dodd discusses why sleep is being regarded increasingly as an acute health issue in developed societies with the FT science editor Clive Cookson and neuroscientist Matthew Walker, author of Why We Sleep. Now, Matt, you refer to the problem in your book as the greatest public health challenge we face. It's been a couple of years since you were researching that book. Are you still of that opinion? Has anything moved on? Is it still as grave as you thought it might be? I think it is still as grave. In fact, I think, if anything, it's become a little bit worse. We don't see a rebound in terms of total sleep time right now. I believe that sleep remains the neglected stepchild in the health conversation of today. I think we've done better in terms of educating the public on things like diet and exercise and all sorts of interesting public health issues. But I cannot for the life of me think of any first world nation that has set forward a strong public health campaign regarding sufficient sleep. And I think that is a blemish on the record of most first world nations that needs to be eradicated and eradicated quickly. And it will cost them very little in terms of benefit. In fact, the cost savings would be monumental if we could help increase and nudge sleep in the upward direction. There has been some movement, Matt, hasn't there, to move school daytimes so that classes start a bit later? There are a small number of counties throughout the United States that have begun to delay their school start times. And here, the average school start time is around about 7.40 to 7.45 a.m. To put that in context, the school buses for a 7.30 a.m. start time will begin leaving at 5.30 in the morning. That means that some children are having to wake up at 5.15 or 5 o'clock, maybe even earlier, which to me is lunacy. And the data is compelling that when you advance school start times, allow children to sleep longer and get the sleep that their brains desperately need, academic grades increase, behavioral problems decrease, truancy rates decrease, and psychological and psychiatric referrals also decrease. So the evidence, I think, now is overwhelming regarding the benefits of later school start times. Okay, let's get a little bit into the science now. Clive, why do we need to sleep? At the most fundamental level, and Matt may disagree, biologists, sleep experts, I've spoken to say, we don't really know why we sleep. We certainly know from experiments that sleep is absolutely essential for all animals. If you don't sleep, as Matt will know all too well, you die. What happens during sleep that makes it so essential? There seem to be two things. One is very practical, that when the brain is asleep, certain biochemical waste disposal operations happen in the body. Some of the brain cells actually change shape so that waste products can be flushed out. And the other thing that happens is information processing, the consolidation of memories and so on. So there's a lot going on in sleep, but at the most fundamental level, scientists haven't yet worked out how it happens, or have they, Matt? Well, I think it really depends on how you pose the question. It's a little bit like saying, why are we awake? And there isn't one answer to that. We are awake for two thirds of our life for a whole multitude of different reasons. That's the function of wakefulness. So I think it's actually a fallacy to ask the question, why is it that we sleep? What is the single function? In fact, what we've realized is that sleep serves a whole constellation of nighttime benefits, not just for the brain, but also for the body. You know, sleep is perhaps 
the very best form of natural blood pressure medication that you could ever wish for. Sleep restocks the armory of our immune system so that you wake up ready to fight any pathogens, viruses, infections coming your way. Sleep regulates your appetite hormones so that you eat properly. It regulates your blood sugar so that you're not set on a path towards diabetes. And so all of these aspects of brain and body are wonderfully restored by sleep when we get it and demonstrably impaired when we don't get enough. So I would argue that we actually now know many of the functional benefits of why we sleep. And Matt, do we know why we dream? Do we know why we dream is a difficult question to answer. Dreaming principally comes from a state that we call rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep for short. And there are at least two areas that seem to give us answers to why do we dream above and beyond why we have REM sleep. The first is that dreaming seems to provide a form of overnight therapy. It's essentially what I would call mental first aid and sleep and particularly not just dream sleep, but dreaming of specific things, the content of your dreams seems to provide that divorcing of painful, bitter, emotional residue from previous waking experience so that you wake up and you don't feel as bad about those things anymore. You've resolved them. That seems to be one benefit of dreaming. The second is memory and particularly the integration of memories, not just the strengthening of individual memories, but stitching them together. What we know is that people who don't just dream, but dream of the things that they were learning during the day, when they wake up, those are the people who show improvements on those memory tasks. So it's not just enough to have REM sleep. It's not even just enough to have dreaming. You have to be dreaming about specific things to get these memory benefits, which gives us a lens through which we can feel confident that it's dreaming itself, not just the stage of sleep from which dreams come. And the act of sleeping as well plays a very important part in things like productivity. We ran a lovely story in the FT a few weeks back about a Japanese company that's actually offering its workers a cash bonus if they can prove they got a certain amount of sleep each night. Tell us a little bit more about things like shift work and how it can affect the workplace. Well, we and others have done a collection of studies now that I think provide an evidential truth, which is less sleep does not equal more productivity. That was a fallacy even in the rote industrial era, and it's never been more true now in the digital knowledge era. I would say that that science can probably be summarized in the following five ways. Underslept employees defined as getting six hours of sleep or less, firstly, will select less challenging problems. They will opt for the easy way out. They'll just check voicemail or email. They don't dig into the hard work of projects. Secondly, of the problems they do select, they produce fewer creative solutions. And creativity and ingenuity, of course, are supposed to be the engines that drive business forward. Third, we know that when underslept employees are working in teams, they slack off and they don't do as much hard work. It's something that we call social loafing. Fourth, what we've discovered worryingly is that the less and less sleep that an employee has, the more likely they are to lie and become deviant and engage in unethical behavior, falsifying data in a spreadsheet, etc. And then the final thing, which is work done by Christopher Barnes here in America, he found that the impact of a lack of sleep goes all the way to the top of the business chain, because the more or less sleep that a business leader has had from one night to the next, the more or less charismatic the employees will rate that business leader from one day to the next, even though they know nothing about the sleep of that CEO. It's evidential in their behavior. 
So we know the science in the trenches level, but there was a wonderful report by the Rand Corporation, which was featured in that great article that you mentioned there in the FT. They looked at the enormous cost of sleep deprivation at a societal level, in fact, at a national level. Firstly, what they found is that insufficient sleep costs most nations about 2% of their GDP. So here in America, that's $411 billion of lost productivity and profit caused by insufficient sleep. The UK, $50 billion, Japan, over $130 billion. So I think my take on this is if we could solve the sleep loss crisis within the workplace, we could almost double the budget for education in most of these nations, or we could almost halve the healthcare deficit. So I think sound sleep has to be seen as sound business. It is the very best form of physiologically injected venture capital that I think any company could wish for. But isn't the individual genetic variation in how much people need to sleep? And there have been some famous leaders like Margaret Thatcher, like Ronald Reagan, various business chief executives who say that their own genetics mean that they really can get by on four or five hours a night. I firstly would actually test if the claim is true. I think it's a wonderful thing to build this superhuman-like quality around you as a leader. And I think several of those that you mentioned there, including the current head of state in America, Donald Trump, he is a vociferous proclaimer of insufficient sleep as well. I think it just looks good for the image. Nobody has verified that they actually slept that little. What I would say, though, which is very saddening, we now know based on a robust science that getting sufficient sleep is probably one of the most significant lifestyle factors determining whether or not you will develop Alzheimer's disease. And I've always wondered whether it is coincidental that Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, both who claimed to get very little sleep, ended up in later life, tragically, both developing Alzheimer's disease. And I would wish that on no one. Are there people who can survive on less than six hours? There is a very rare genetic mutation that we've discovered that allows people to survive on somewhere between five to six hours a night and not show impairment. But to put that in context, you are far more likely to be struck by lightning in your lifetime than you are to have this rare genetic mutation. Some people, though, sleep more than eight hours, nine hours, 10 hours. And there are epidemiological studies, Matt, showing that their mortality and health records deteriorate with longer sleep beyond eight or nine hours. Is, is that true? It does seem to be true. There's almost like a J-shaped curve to sleep and mortality. We know that the shorter your sleep, the shorter your life. But what's interesting is that that reduction in your risk of death doesn't keep going the longer that you sleep. Once you get past about nine and a half, 10 hours of sleep, your mortality risk actually starts to rise again. Now, if you look into those studies, it's unclear that those people who are sleeping more but seem to have a higher risk of death, they actually seem to be the people who are suffering with chronic disease, things like cancer, immune issues, or cardiovascular disease. Now, one thing we know is that whenever we get sick, we just tend to want to sleep more because sleep is the Swiss army knife of health. You know, whatever ailment you have, it's more than likely got a tool in the box. And so right now, one interpretation of that data is that in fact, the reason that people were dying but sleeping more is because 
they were calling up the healthcare system of sleep to try and help them, but the disease was just too severe for sleep to overcome. And it masquerades as looking like more sleep equals higher risk of death towards the end. But I still don't want to dismiss what you said, Clive, because I think it's an interesting point. Let's just entertain the idea that there could be such a thing as too much sleep. Well, we shouldn't be surprised by that because the same is true for food, the same is true for water, same is true for oxygen. Can you drink too much water? It happened in the 1990s with the ecstasy crave. People were overhydrating, their blood pressure went too high, they had cardiovascular events. Can you eat too much? Yes, of course, we know that that's the case too. Can you have too much oxygen? You can have hyperoxemia where you have free radical damage in the brain because of too high oxygen concentrations. What about the fourth principal ingredient of life, this thing that we call sleep? Well, we haven't discovered that too much sleep leads to deleterious health consequences, but I think it's a reasonable possibility. Are most people in danger of sleeping too much, though, based on the data? Very much not. Quite the opposite. So, Matt, what is the ideal amount of sleep and what kind of time of day is best to do it? The ideal amount of sleep is somewhere between seven to nine hours But to get seven hours of sleep, you probably have to be in bed for at least seven and a half hours because you will wake up throughout the night a little bit. It takes you a little bit to fall asleep. So you have to be mindful when I'm telling you you need to get, you know, eight hours of sleep. I'm telling you you need at least an eight and a half hour sleep opportunity. The second issue is timing. And that's a really good question, too. It's different for different people. And It depends on what we call your chronotype, which simply is a fancy way of saying, are you a morning type or are you an evening type? It's not your choice, by the way. It's genetic. We know the genes that determine whether you are an owl or a lark. And if you are an evening type, but you're trying to put yourself on a morning type schedule because of work, the quality of your sleep will not be as good, even if you get a full eight hours relative to when you were to sleep with your natural rhythm. So some of when you need to sleep depends on what you are in terms of your genetic predisposition. Taken to the extreme, that is what we call nighttime shift work. That's where you have to be awake throughout the night and you have to force your sleep during the day. Even shift workers who give themselves eight or nine hours of sleep opportunity during the day they do not get the quality of sleep that they would have if they were sleeping at night because we are, by design, a diurnal species. We like to be awake during the day and we're designed biologically to do that. So it's not as simple as get your sleep at any time during the 24-hour period. Matt, we're in bleak midwinter at the moment. Is there a time of year when our sleep patterns change as well? It does seem to depend on the seasons. And we know this from studying hunter-gatherer tribes throughout the world who you know, are untouched by all of the influences of modernity. And so they're an interesting population to study. And although many of them live somewhat close to the equator, others are far enough away where they'll have a seasonal shift. And indeed, what you find is that during the winter months, they will sleep longer. And during the summer months, they'll sleep less. So that does seem to suggest that we may have this 12-monthly cycle to our sleep in addition to many other different timeframes that we could measure and meter out our our sleep need. Some of that seems to do with light exposure during the day. Other aspects actually seem to do with temperature. So it seems to be both temperature and light that dictate our seasonal changes in sleep. We also know strangely, by the way, 
that our sleep changes dramatically on the basis of the moon, on the lunar cycle too, that during the full moon, we tend to sleep a little less. And when people sleep less, we know that they are a little bit more emotionally erratic and unstable. And it's often led me to wonder about the term lunatic and where that term actually comes from and whether it actually is sleep related or not. That's fascinating. Finally, Matt, in your book, you give some tips for healthy sleep. If you had to choose just three for someone, a social loafer or lunatic like myself, who finds it very difficult to sleep sometimes, what would your top three tips be? I think the first beyond giving yourself really a non-negotiable eight hour sleep opportunity every night, the first would be regularity. Go to bed at the same time and wake up at the same time, no matter whether it's the weekend or the weekday, even if you've had a bad night of sleep, still get up at the same time. It sounds paradoxical, but that will reset your system and then get to bed at the normal time the following night. Regularity is king. If there's one thing that you take away from this, just wake up at the same time every day, that would be it. Beyond that, abstaining from alcohol and caffeine are probably your two best solutions in terms of consumption. The final aspect I would say is your environment, temperature and light. We are a dark deprived society in this modern era and we need darkness at night to release a hormone called melatonin to help with healthy sleep. So dim down half the lights in your home in the last hour before bed try to stay away from screens get your bedroom temperature down to about 65 degrees celsius or sort of somewhere around about 18 degrees celsius those would be my tips for better sleep that was darren dodd talking to clive cookson and matthew walker professor of neuroscience and psychology and the director of the center for human sleep science at the university of california berkeley we'll be back with another news feature later this week in the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com offer.